Hello, everybody, and hello, live uh, live viewers on Facebook. Uh, we are reaching uh, about 40 people here uh, live in downtown Indianapolis, Indiana. We have people who have traveled in from all over the Midwest to be a part of this very special conversation tonight with a venture capitalist and two entrepreneurs uh, from the Midwest. This is a really special episode of our podcast because it's the first time we've ever had a live audience for the podcast. So really happy to have you guys here as a part of it. Uh, also, it's very special because it will be the first episode of season two. Um, and that means we've looked at everything that was good in season one, all first 50 episodes. Uh, in fact, some of our guests here today are going to be from season one that we brought back for a very special episode, um, but then also some new faces as well. Uh, we looked at everything we did and decided what was best and came up with a new format uh, that you may have seen in sort of some of our in-between episodes. So tonight, here's what you're going to see. The first 15 minutes are going to be a discussion with our special guest of honor, uh, who is a serial entrepreneur uh, himself, but is now a venture capitalist. Uh, and he is here to talk with you today, and I'll introduce him here in just a minute. But then we will have two entrepreneurs, uh, one uh, Indianapolis entrepreneur, one Cincinnati-based entrepreneur, and they're each going to have a chance to pitch their startup. They're not pitching for investment necessarily from this VC. Um, they're just telling us a little bit about their company, uh, and we're going to give get into a little bit of Q&A. Um, this whole time, you're all able to go on your phones, and you watching on Facebook uh, can go to the Facebook live stream and ask questions. Uh, we have some helpful uh, friends on the Powder Keg team who are going to be feeding me some of the best questions so we can ask some of our guests here those questions. Does that sound good? For those of you on Facebook, they all said yes. So hopefully that works for you guys too. Uh, feel free to ask questions. Obviously, share the live stream uh, with the feed. Really what we're doing here with Powder Cake Igniting Startups is shining a light on some of the best and most innovative uh, tech companies, but also some of the overarching trends that affect all of our businesses and the ways that we're innovating throughout the Midwest and beyond. Um, and we've got, uh, again, three great guests. So I just dropped my notes on the floor, so I, I want to make sure I can read these notes because I've known all three of our guests for some time. Uh, but when you look at their LinkedIn profile, it's kind of crazy because they're very... Uh, very much experienced, and I probably won't name all of the bullet points, so I just pulled some choice ones here. Our first guest uh, started at Hewlett-Packard in recruiting and management, uh, got his MBA from Harvard, uh, consulted and did strategy for a bit at Boston Consulting Group, and then pivoted into the VC world in New York City, started at Fox Group. Um, he's spent lots of time at other uh, New York City venture capital firms, so we'll be very interested to get his perspective on Coastal VC versus Midwest VC. Uh, serves on a lot of entrepreneurial advisory boards here. Uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs in the powder keg community mention his name when I ask who their most helpful advisor is, which is why we've had him back on the podcast here for season two. Uh, make sure you check out uh, the season one podcast with him and Haresh Gangwani from Bolstra. That's a really great episode on customer service. Uh, please help me welcome the co-founder and manag managing director of Alice Ventures, Don Aquilano. Thank you, Don. This thing is not on at all for us. Got it. This is Facebook. Excellent. So uh, I'm glad hello. I wasn't written off after uh, season one. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> you absolutely <laughs> weren't written off for season one. Um, some of the stories I really enjoyed in that conversation were uh, your, your journey from entrepreneurship and then uh, your, some of your adventures at Guinness. Uh, where you were doing some uh, global expansion. Good memory. Yes. Good memory, yes. Um, what, what are some of your favorite memories, uh, both highs and lows? Maybe, that those, maybe the lows wouldn't be your favorite memories. What are, what are some of your most indelible memories from your, 
uh, journeys as an entrepreneur? So uh, I was involved with two different uh, software startups early on, um, and uh, one worked and one didn't. And so uh, the, the one that worked uh, was um, a company that we formed to help read uh, information out of kernels of uh, uh, servers so we could help predict uh, response time uh, on uh, systems. And so uh, a number of customers were like uh, uh, Bell South and, and other AT&T baby bells who wanted to roll out big billing systems or changes. Um, and we were able to predict um, uh, how they would perform and whether they needed to actually change the way the software worked or number of, um, uh, or number of servers. The other one, so that worked out pretty well, the other one was to help uh, universities uh, improve their uh, recruiting of students um, uh, for admissions. And it turns out uh, I learned the, uh, the definition of long sales cycles. And we b- basically ran out of money before we actually collected uh, uh, our first uh, uh, receipts from sale. And so uh, there's nothing like actually being in the trenches and seeing what works and what doesn't work. It, uh, it, it helps a lot more than getting an MBA. I'll tell you that much. So um, <laughs> a lot capital? of fun, but a lot of tears. Um, no, no. Actually, both of those were sweat equity. Sweat equity. Um, and we put some of our own money in. It's and very so, Midwest of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it hurts more when it's your own money, uh, you know, and that's why we put money in our own funds when we uh, invest as well. Awesome. I love it. Well, uh, today I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, fundraising in the Midwest and, of course, your role as one of the, the most connected uh, kind of have your finger on the pulse of the Midwest tech ecosystem at Alice Ventures. I think you're well poised to give us some insight there. I wanted to share a couple of stats um, that I know you're aware of, but just to kind of inform some of the conversation today, um, there's some stats about the Midwest that actually I learned today while doing some research uh, early this morning. Uh, 150 Fortune 500 companies in the Midwest, uh, 150 of the 500 Fortune 500 companies. 25% of all U.S. computer science graduates are in the Midwest. 60% of the country's manufacturing base is in the Midwest. 19% of all U.S. patents filed are in the Midwest. And only 5% of all venture capital funding is in the Midwest. That's why we're here. <laughs> Honestly, it, uh, 75% of venture capital goes to three states. Yep. New York, Massachusetts, and, of course, California. Um, A.K.A. And, NYC, Boston, and SF. Absolutely. And... Um, so the landscape is uh, incredible here from everything you just said, yep. including the dramatically lower cost of living, cost of building a business, uh, et cetera. That combination of a capital gap, um, the landscape in terms of the customers, where they are, right? These are, you know, we're starting, we're starting companies here, right? And uh, who better to sort of be beta customers and to be people that work with uh, than our Midwestern sort of Fortune 500 companies. Um, but the capital gap combined with the maturing ecosystem here is exactly why m- the Midwest is becoming a pretty interesting place to invest. And there's just not enough of us uh, to go around. So what, Why is that? Why, why don't we have more capital accessible to the Midwest? So it's, it's funny. It's sort of a virtuous cycle. So in the late 70s is when more or less the venture capital industry started in Silicon Valley, and it was around companies like HP and so on. All those companies were ultimately, at some point, venture-backed. And um, so success breeds success. And so it actually was exponential in terms of their growth. 
and it just was a later start, and it took longer for the Midwest to sort of catch on, um, and it, uh, it was more reliant on the facts that you're citing there in yep. terms of where to build a business, how to bu build a business, where the customers are. Um, those are different drivers than the drivers that started the VC sort of industry ultimately and initially in the Bay Area. So we're catching up. And by the way, we can be very, very successful here without trying to chase the tail of the Silicon Valley. And so we're delighted with everything that we see in terms of the landscape. Well, sure, you have the money. Yeah, and, <laughs> and but listen, we don't want to be the only ones with the money. And that's, that's changing as well. Absolutely. I'm just giving you a hard time. Thank you. <laughs> So um, on that note of exactly what you were saying, Don, you know, last year total investment in Midwestern company was up to an all-time high of $4.5 billion, um, and investors are definitely seeing returns. 37 companies in the region exited for a total of $5.1 billion, um, up from $1.6 billion in 2016, which is awesome. I mean, cover my meds. Uh, it was Ohio's first tech unicorn, and we'll have another Ohio founder up here on stage in just a second. Uh, $1.1 billion exit. Of course, Indiana had exact targets, $2.5 billion exit. But since then, Interactive Intelligence has sold to Genesis, many other uh, examples here in Indiana. Um, do you feel like that's the trend kind of catching up to Silicon Valley, or do you see that as sort of its own um, unique case study? Uh, I, I expect it uh, to continue. Um, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of my time comparing myself to Silicon Valley. We've got our own thing going here, and frankly, I like it better. Um, you know, the other interesting uh, fact that exists out there is, uh, I think CB Insights uh, did an analysis, um, and Crunchbase, I think, did it as well. And they looked at regions in the United States, and they took a look at the exits. So you just cited, you know, the many billions of exits we had. They also said the multiples, right, the multiples of those exits. And uh, some are the average, you know, sort of return multiples for exits were in the three to four range yep. in the Midwest. I've actually got the metrics here. You Tell me. I'm here we go. 4.1x in the Midwest and 6.2x in the Great Lakes, which technically were in the Great Lakes. If you combine that Silicon area, Valley. it's over 5x, and it exceeds every other region. Love it. Right? So uh, one of the quotes that they're saying is it uh, may have uh, slightly fewer exits, but they're mightier. And, um, and part of that is because of how efficient it is to grow businesses, and we're surrounded by all the factors that you talked about in terms of inputs, in terms of a maturing ecosystem, um, and customers who are right around us. I have kind of an opposing stat. Which I is, disagree with it. Which is that <laughs> Silicon, Valley, Silicon Valley companies have an average years to exit of 5.6 years, whereas the Midwest is 6.7 and Great Lakes is 6.3. Do you think that that's um, a hindrance to kind of the, the flywheel continuing to, to uh, turn or just more of a lagging indicator of kind of what you were talking about, Silicon Valley having a head start? There's probably a number of things that go into that. Um, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, we may, may not be in such a rush. Uh, and ultimately, six years of growth is better than five years of growth. Sure. And the nature of the uh, investments that, uh, that, that are made uh, in the Midwest are uh, potentially different, right? So there's a number of sort of business to B2C companies in the, uh, uh, call it the Bay Area, that uh, can very quickly gain eyeballs and members and activity without actually having the revenue model fully play out. And those will get snapped up pretty quickly by those that can monetize that, right? It's just a different beast here. Um, and I'll take our model any day over the West Coast. Better risk-adjusted returns, right? 
Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the difference in the landscape uh, of being in, in the coasts, right? So coming from New York City uh, to the Midwest, uh, I've heard a lot of VCs, and granted these were coastal VCs, kind of give the, um, the advice to uh, talk more like coastal tech founders uh, to, to VCs. Um, is that something that, that you've ever said or that you would actually even recommend to a founder here in the Midwest to act and talk more like a coastal entrepreneur? So l let me give you a little anecdote here. Um, one of our companies that we're invested in, uh, we have a fairly prominent uh, coastal venture capitalist uh, as a director. Um, and one day after one of our board meetings, he said, I wish this management team ran all of my companies out east or west. And um, he said they're less entitled, they're more transparent, they're more collaborative, they're more coachable. Um, and so I wouldn't change anything about the way we do what we do here. Um, additionally, he cited the fact that in their world of investing, it's like a knife fight, right? Very competitive, right? There are more VCs in Manhattan than there are in the Midwest. And that creates a fairly competitive dynamic that, um, that the VCs don't like. Um, let alone uh, some of the entrepreneurs. And so we're very collaborative here. You know, I'm in, uh, we're invested with 40 different syndicate partners. Half of them are in the broader Midwest. So almost everyone. It's kind of a family feel. It really is, yeah. right? And so I'd rather not steal a company from another VC. I'd rather do the deal with them. Well, and, and that's great. I, I've definitely seen that a lot and heard about that kind of um, through some of these great success stories out of the Powder Keg community. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit? You, you mentioned coachable. What would you coach uh, an early-stage entrepreneur, let's say a seed-stage entrepreneur who's looking at raising a, a round of seed capital? Let's assume they have product market fit and some traction. Uh, what would your biggest piece of advice to them be you know, before they actually start fundraising? So... One of the patterns that we've seen in our own portfolio, when we just did this analysis, is we have generally uh, met and we have like our own CRM of companies. We meet with a company, we put it in our deal tracking system. Usually it's two or three years prior to our first investment that we first met the team. We did it with Lessonly here in town. We did it with uh, Amplify. We did it uh, with Tinderbox Octave. We met them early on, and so um, I would say as an early-stage, seed-stage company, don't be afraid to reach out before you're ready to invest or to, to seek investment. Let us know what you're doing. We happen to have this very interesting perch upon which we sit and see lots of sort of pattern recognition, and we're, we're very eager to help because we want every company, whether we're invested in them or not, to succeed. And so, and by the time it is uh, the right time to invest, we know a lot about the humans involved in that company. We know a lot about the history. We know a lot about uh, what we guided them to and whether they did it or not. And so I would say reach out early and, uh, and don't be afraid to, to talk. It, it's our lifeblood. We're the entrepreneurs are our lifeblood. We want to meet with you, even if it's before our sort of formal investment stage. In, in terms of that first meeting or those first couple of interactions, what are you looking for 
as an investor who wants to build that relationship? And, and how can a founder position themselves um, ahead of time, you know, assuming maybe they're going to raise capital three, six months out, and this is your first meeting, or two to three years out, and this is your first, first meeting? What are some of those things that really stand out to you? Uh, I tell you what. an example. Yeah, so I would say um, we want to see that the entrepreneur is legitimately putting themselves in the shoes of their customer, right, and is passionately looking to solve their problem, right? Because ultimately, this is hard, right? It's, you know, IBM misses its numbers. Small companies miss their numbers. This is hard, right, building, building a company. The only way to succeed is if you're passionately trying to solve your customers' problems, which means you're intimately involved in understanding of what they do and how they do it, right? We want to see that. We can sense it. We can feel it. Usually when we meet with entrepreneurs, we try to do it at their offices. We want to see the vibe. We want to see what they're measuring. We want to get a sense for the culture, right? And so and it has to be sincere. That's what we want to see because ultimately – um, if you have that passion, you're going to have a decent culture, and you're going to have a good shot at actually making a difference and solving, solving the, the customer's problems. And it can't just be marginal improvement over their alternatives. You've got to make a big difference. You've got to solve something that makes the customer's lives a lot better for a lot less money, ultimately, um, because it takes, a, it takes a lot for customers to open up their wallet and buy. That's what we're looking for is that passion and understanding of their customer. Well, I know both the founders that we're about to bring up here on stage uh, have that passion for their customer. I'm very excited to hear their pitches. Uh, I want to ask one more question, but also want to re remind people tuning in on Facebook Live and people uh, here in the audience. Looks like we might actually have an audience question. Thank you, Patrick. Um, this question is, do coastal investors have preconceptions about Midwest founders? Have you heard that with the coastal investors you've participated in rounds? So sometimes yes, sometimes no, and it's changing, right? So you've got a number of large firms that have made very good returns on the Primos and the exact targets and folks um, around here. So that's changing. Um, you know, they may have a preconception that, you know, we're satisfied with modest growth and modest you know, success, and we're happy to grow at, you know, organic pace and so on. Um, so we need to nip that in the bud, which is uh, no, right? We, you know, we're, we're all in, and there is no difference except a better landscape to build a business than the sort of the, the coast. And so sometimes there's that misperception, um, uh, but we very quickly, uh, we very quickly nip it in the bud. How could we do that? How could we uh, play off maybe some of these misconceptions or uh, some of the things that investors um, have preconceptions about? Yeah, well, I, first of all, we have to do a good job like you're, you're doing of telling our story, right? We have, we have a lot of great success stories, and we've got third-party analysis that says the same thing. Sure. We need to beat that drum. We, need, we have to have that roll off our tongue um, uh, with every sort of contact that we, that we make with our, with our friends on the coast. Um, but ultimately, over time, it's the success that does it. When they see it, when they touch it, they feel it, and they make money, and they come back. Um, I remember having a conversation with um, uh, a partner at Battery Ventures, and it just occurred to them at one point a few years ago, they said, wow, it occurred to us, we have over $100 million invested in companies in Indianapolis, right? And they made money on all of them. I think one of them is still in play. But, um, Pretty great track record, It's though. a great track record. <laughs> we don't need to explain to them anymore uh, about the Midwest entrepreneurships. Oh, that's great. 
Well, enough talk about founders. Should we bring some up? Let's do it. All right, cool. Yeah. Let's do it. Our first founder uh, came all the way from Cincinnati, Ohio. She's the CEO and co-founder of Organalytics. Please help me welcome Shweta Pai. You're not going anywhere. Right. We're keeping you up here. Okay. That's my MC fail on my part. No. Our next entrepreneur is the president and founder of an amazing company here, has pitched on the powder keg stage many times, did all of the original legal for powder keg when I didn't know what the heck I was doing, uh, and is now growing an amazing high-growth business called PackSafe. Please help me welcome Brian Powers. We didn't have play on music for you guys, so... (laughs) I thought maybe a great place to start, uh, for those of you not familiar with Powder Keg, we do quite a lot of uh, pitching at Powder Keg. Uh, maybe you could just give us the elevator pitch on, on each of your companies, just so we all have a general understanding of what you're working on, and, uh, and then maybe we could ask some questions after. Sure. Great. Should I go first? Shweta, would you kick us off? Sure. What is Organalytics? So Organalytics uh, is a uh, decision-making tool for leaders uh, who want to understand relationships within their teams. So we use something called organizational network analysis. It's, you know, Don explained it as human networks. Uh, it's around relationships, who is fostering what relationships within their teams. And we give leaders that transparency and then we apply machine learning tools to help them actually make decisions around innovation, agile teams, around um, inclusion and diversity programs, change management programs, transformation, things like that. Very cool. Um, Could you give us maybe an idea of the the stage and the scale that you're at right now? Sure. We're uh, early stage. We're still bootstrapped. Great. (laughs) Uh, Very Midwestern right now. It's all sweat equity. Um, We are three founders. We uh, got started about two years ago. It took us a while to build out the tool and the machine learning model. So we're about uh, nine months in into the pilot into the pilot stage. Um, So we are. uh, you know, we're just kind of uh, piloting with our early clients right now, just building out our database, really uh, looking at partnerships with a lot of other kind of uh, um, adjacent companies and potentially other partners. Great. So maybe considering raising your seed round soon. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe. We'll okay. see. Okay. Cool. Um, great. And I, I would love to open uh, for conversation on Organalytics here in just a second, but I, I, f- I thought maybe first, uh, Brian, you could tell us a little bit about PackSafe. And even though you can't hear the feedback from the mic, if you can hold up the mic uh, while you talk. I, I just sometimes forget. So Okay. <laughs> so best way to describe what PackSafe is, I'm going to do it in the context of our viewers out in Facebook land. So if you think about when you went to sign up for Facebook, and I assume everybody in here did that, you know, you didn't get an email from a rep after you filled out the registration form that said, hey, if you sign our terms and conditions and send them back to us in a PDF, then we're going to give you access to Facebook, right? It's a ridiculous concept to even think about. They have, what, 17 trillion users or something like that, right? So what did they do? They made the contracts a seamless part of the registration form by putting a checkbox right there, right? So what PackSafe is built to do is make contracts, similarly, a seamless, frictionless, high-velocity part of any business process. So um, the contract execution phase. So 
the way that manifests itself might be as a checkbox on some of our customers like Upwork, TiVo, CDW, Angie's List. We do millions of uh, acceptances of terms and conditions every week for companies like that. Sometimes it might manifest itself as call centers, well, they're called contact centers now, sending out contracts via text message. Somebody types, I agree. Um, really, it's about how do you make contracts a seamless part of where, how, and when you engage your customers. Um, and then by doing that, you eliminate a ton of friction. You make all of that process much more higher velocity. Um, and has, so that has all sorts of benefits to you know, any business. Um, the why behind what we do it is, uh, so yes, about stage. So we're at, um, we're 14 employees. We just raised a Series A round. We have a couple thousand customers. We've done about 40 million contract acceptance events. Um, and at that point, it becomes very important to figure out why do you do this? And, uh, you know, contracts generally suck. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, yeah, I want to draft some contracts, except for maybe the Taft lawyers over here, right? <laughs> they do that, right? I used to do it when I was your lawyer. Um, but besides that, contracts... Thanks for being so excited about it. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was fun times. So. Whole another podcast. But contracts generally suck. Um, and building software around something that sucks sort of sucks also, right? Like, it's not something you get up in the morning and say, I want to build contract software. So what we think about, we think about the time savings, right? So you think about we've processed 40 million legal events. Our math says that we've saved our customers, their employees, and their families about a million hours of time already. And so you know, our mission is to put a billion hours of time back into the world by removing friction from the contract process. That's an awesome mission. It is an awesome mission. Big, hairy, audacious goal. There we go. I love it. Um, well, and you've raised a seed round and a Series A. Yes. Correct? Yep. Um, well, I'd love to talk a little bit about raising a seed round. As uh, a founder who has completed a seed round here in Indiana and in the Midwest, and as a founder who may or may not, uh, depending on how you want to grow your business, yeah. it's your business, don't let me put words in your mouth, but um, when considering raising a seed round, um, how did you make that decision to, to go forward with it? Yeah, I mean, whether it's seed or any level, I think the you really have to understand why. Like, why, why am I going to raise money? Why should I raise money? What does that mean to the business? And that's not... It's not just about, well, you have to know that to go and talk to somebody like Don, because they're going to want to know why in all sorts of different ways, right? But, but beyond that, um, you know, if you don't know why, then you can't answer any other questions about where the business is going to go. Um, Don, what are some good answers to the, question, to the question, why are you raising capital, and what are some bad answers to the question well, I just that, think that it, you've heard? Yeah, I just think it needs to be well thought out, which is, which is your point, because ultimately... You don't need to raise venture capital. Don't. It'll, it'll change your company, right? You'll get diluted. You have people on your board. It's different, right? Everything changes, right? So ultimately, the question is, um, you must see value in doing more of something, hiring more engineers, hiring more go-to-market. We want to see that that's well thought out, right, and that the amount raised is well thought out and that they understand sort of our interest in potentially doing that. So it just has to hold, the story has to hold together. If a company doesn't need it and they're raising it, we can see that. 
um, but if there's something that's working, there's a product that works, and they're on to a go-to-market strategy, and now they want to invest in more of that, and they, I can see the drivers, and I can see the outcome of doing this, it makes all the sense in the world, because now I can see that it builds value for the company, which is what they care about, and it builds value for the investor as well. Um, and so that's what, we need to, that's what we need to see. If it's just a blanket, hey, you know, I'm a tech guy, and I want to raise VC because it sounds cool, and no, it's got to actually hold together. Brian, what was your why before you raised your seed round? Why did you raise your seed round? Well, we, we had a great opportunity, and there was, there was no way to go after it unless we capitalized it. So, and I didn't have enough money to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it, for, for us, and I think a lot of times in the Midwest, it comes out to, you know, building a team. And you can't, you can't build a team ahead of your cash flow, especially when you have no cash flow to begin with, and you don't have a big enough bank account to build a team. You know, unless you find some people to back you. Great answer. And, uh, Anything to add there? Yeah, just to kind of clarify, it, you know, for us, we are um, at the stage where we're still working a lot around that um, product market fit and the mar- and the market validation. To be honest, because uh, the market that we're in, it's uh, fast growing, it's very dynamic. So we want to make sure before we actually go down any of the seed rounds that. Uh, we are very um, sure of where we would fit in, um, and that's where we're doing a lot of the pilots, and that's where a lot of our kind of uh, initial work has been, is making sure that we are laser-focused on that product market fit. And, and are, are pilots kind of the primary way you guys are bootstrapping yes. uh, today? Yeah, exactly, um, uh, because it does two things. First of all, it lets us test out a lot of our algorithms that we've built in. Um, secondly, it helps us build a lot of the knowledge that we need for future uh, engagement. So, for example, uh, you know, when we look at organizational network analysis, there is no real kind of central database that, looks, that tells us, hey, this is what the organization, an R&D organization in a large consumer products company should look like this in fa- as far as a knowledge network. There's no information like that. There's only just kind of theories. So we can actually start to build that kind of benchmarking and then use that for our future learning. So for us, the pilots are key right now. Absolutely. That's awesome. And it's cool that you're able to bootstrap that together. Shows you're probably onto some product market fit. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, Don, anything, uh, what kind of questions would you ask kind of an early stage company that is bootstrapping? Whether you want to use what does company as an example or if you want to just talk more generally, um, what are some of the things that you're really looking for to make sure this company is ready to be funded in a seed round. Yeah, so it's a lot of the things that you're, you're actually doing, which is what sort of validation are you looking for? So obviously there's a hypothesis from the entrepreneur about uh, the customer's pain point and what you're doing to solve it. And so th- we, we start pressing early on, what have you done to validate it? Who are you talking to? Uh, um, who, who are your advisors, right? Do you have any sort of customer advisors? Who are you, uh, um, and then product market fit, how does your product market fit compared to sort of other alternatives, right? right. How are you thinking about this, right? right. So it's early stages. It's, it's a little bit, obviously, earlier. You had, a, you had a product and you had a go-to-market plan on your last round, and you're leaning into it. Um, we want to make sure that you have a good sense of, of what the product is, number one, yep. and uh, the possibility of what you're working on as a, as a solution, right? And, and, and hearing that customer voice through what you're doing sort of matters to us. That's really good advice. 
Uh, in terms of uh, who you raise from as a company, um, as a startup here in the Midwest, I was reading, again, in some of my early morning research this morning, I saw the advice, uh, if you're a company in the Midwest, coastal VCs don't care about you. Um, Brian, what's your perspective on that? Um, well, I disagree with that, but <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it's, I mean, so the round that we just closed, both of our co-leads, neither of them are from the Midwest. One's from Salt Lake City, one is from Texas. Um, so not coastal VCs. We did talk to some coastal VCs, and we talked to local VCs. Um, and, you know, there's, to us, it wasn't about where they were. It was about, you know, what what can they do for us besides write a check? Um, and I think, um, you know, you have to be really thoughtful and deliberate about that decision. Um, one of the things that I've always liked about talking to Don in, is that, uh, you know, he points out that one of the big things a VC can do for you is pattern recognition. You know, they see so many things happening in their portfolio that, that you know, they can help you, they can minimize your propensity to make mistakes as you scale and grow. Um, so, but that process really involves asking a lot of questions. So we screened our VCs maybe even harder than they screened us. You know, you, you got to check references. You got to ask lots of questions. You got to give them scenarios. How would you suggest that we solve this problem, even if it's a hypothetical? Um, you know, because those people are going to be on your board. They're going to be giving you advice, and you want good advice. So you have to, you really have to ask a lot of questions and look at finding a VC is not finding an investor, but finding a business partner. Um, you know, it's, it's almost a co-founder relationship, especially at the Series A level where it's like, hey, you know, you're in this together now, and you don't want to make that decision poorly. Yeah, please ask a question. So, Brian, did you guys uh, specify which, uh, did you go to VCs that were in a specific industry, or were you going to, how did you even find these VCs and whittle the VC population down? So our approach was a little bit differently. Um, we, uh, we just, we, we networked. Um, I had a pretty good network from practicing law and uh, knew some investment bankers that made a bunch of introductions to us, mm -hmm. or for us. And um, really for us, it was, you know, we started there with warm introductions and we said, hey, we're looking for people that have a background in B2B SaaS. Okay. And then from there, you know, we started taking meetings and started pitching and started interviewing them. And um, but that's a process that we took. You know, some people will cast a much wider net and that's OK as well. Right. Um, but, you know, we, we, we started with warm introductions to people that and the first criteria was experience with B2B SaaS, okay. and ideally people that were interested in investing in the Midwest because I didn't want to have all those conversations about Midwest versus Silicon Valley and all that stuff. And Did you get any pressure locationally to move or to kind of change your location? Sorry, uh, Ask away. <laughs> this is great. I'm not needed here. Just I'll go grab Matt. a beer. <laughs> Uh, th those questions came up, and then that was usually the last conversation we had because I wasn't going to stand for it. I mean, really, it's you, 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 you don't – why waste your time? And if somebody doesn't – if they haven't done their due diligence and they don't understand our market, then, you know, I don't have time for that. So those discussions ended very quickly.
Brian's holding out his best kept networking secret right now. What's that? Can I disclose that here on the podcast? I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's the hat. Oh, it's the hat. Yeah, all right. Can you tell a story the about the hat? Um, well, there's lots of stories about the hat. <laughs> I have multiple hats. Keep it PG-13. This one doesn't match. Usually I have a hat that matches my shirt, but this time I didn't. No, I, I, I mean, when I started shaving my head, I started wearing hats around, and I, was, I went to an event at uh, Stanford Law School two years in a row, and uh, the second year... And I was wearing it because you walk outside of Palo Alto and you, my head would burn, right? Because I was newly head shaved and didn't have a lot of exposure to the sun. And two people, one was uh, uh, a big-time a big professor at the Stanford School of Law and another one was a, a big guy in tech out there. And they both walked up and they're like, hey, Brian, Brian. And they both said they remembered me because of my hat. So <laughs> I, haven't take, I haven't taken it off since then. <laughs> Product market fit. There we go. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I think the thing there, though, is, is be remarkable. Like, be different. Like, be worth remarking. I, like, I, I actually remember 20 minutes ago when you walked, well, maybe 30 minutes ago when you walked through the door, Don commented, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Don. Don was like, there's Brian in his uniform. You <laughs> 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 walked in the door. <laughs> And, uh, uh, I don't know what that means. No, oh, it's a hat. good thing. It's a good thing. I was like, I was like, yep, he's consistent. There you go. Oh, that's good. Um, cool. Uh, Shweta, can you talk to me a little bit about um, maybe what you're seeing in Cincinnati? Um, what are what are you experiencing, particularly from individuals who are participating in seed rounds? Because um, I know you're a part of a, an amazing uh, community there. Uh, yep. Centrifuge is a big part of that. And yep. We actually have some leadership from Centrifuge here tonight yep. uh, here li- in the live audience. Yep. Um, but could you tell us uh, maybe a little bit what you're seeing from the uh, investment community there? Because it's probably not unique to, to Cincinnati. No. Um, I, you know, I've been um, in Cincinnati now almost two years. Uh, but I was kind of we were building out our tools. So I was at home. I wasn't really out there marketing anything. So it's been about uh, four or five months since I've been part of the Centrifuge community out there. Um, and it's been very exciting. I mean, honestly, there are a lot of very interesting things going on. AR, VR startups, very high-level um, uh, tech um, startup uh, things. And we're su- I'm surrounded by very smart people, which is always very exciting uh, to be part of. The other thing that is very unique or something that I find very um, exciting about Cincinnati is the big coast, right? And the, the partnership that we have. Um, and that's been very much part of the Centrifuge community as well, is that they are very, uh, I've been invited to so many different events where it's just me and maybe a couple other startups, but surrounded by big companies to just practice my pitch. And just to say, hey, here's a large company that's out here who is, maybe they're facing the same thing. Maybe they have an innovation problem. Talk to them. Uh, they could be know. a pilot on that bootstrapping They could be, a, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. Great. A pilot or just a place to just vet, uh, you know, customer pain points, right? Uh, I think this is what it is. Now let me talk to them and see if that actually jives. Um, so that's been very exciting. I can tell you one of the things that I've seen here in, in Indianapolis and just traveling around the Midwest is that there uh, there is oftentimes a little bit of a funding gap, um, sometimes between the seed and Series A, uh, but also sometimes even just getting the seed round together. Uh, if you're not super well networked, um, like Brian was, you know, not just in Indianapolis but beyond, 
uh, it can take a very long time, uh, sometimes a year and a half or more, to put together uh, a seed round that, that you can really go and, and scale. Is that something that you've heard in the ecosystem, too, in Cincinnati, or is that more unique to Indianapolis? You know, I, I honestly have not uh, necessarily heard it in that, in that vein right now. I mean, there are a lot of accelerators and there's a lot of kind of uh, incubators uh, that are very eager to go out there. So honestly, right now, I'm see, what I'm hearing is a lot of um, places for uh, entrepreneurs to go. You guys have I so think, many awesome accelerators. It's, right, it's amazing. exactly, exactly. So uh, I think that's been kind of, uh, that has kept the um, kind of the entrepreneurship um, community engaged right now. And as far as the seed round uh, kind of uh, funding gap, I mean, I, I lived in Indy, I, as you know. I yes. lived in Indy before I moved to uh, Cincinnati. Um, to me, Indianapolis was great. I mean, I, it was so easy to network. It still with. is, I promise. <laughs> I know, I love, I love Indianapolis. Um, and so, you know, to me, I, it's, it's the same. It's very similar in a lot of ways. Um, I think Cincinnati has, uh, I think Indianapolis was very well connected as far as uh, kind of the medium scale businesses, whereas uh, Cincinnati has the big co uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, connections as well on top of that, um, or, well, the big co's, here there are a lot of big companies as well, but in Cincinnati, it seems like the big co's are driving a lot of it, where, whereas here it felt more like the medium-sized mm -hmm. uh, companies were driving a lot of the conversation um, as far as piloting, networking, uh, engagement with the community. So I think that's kind of the difference I see. I don't know if that's good or bad, but... Uh, how about you, Brian or, or Don? Have you have you heard that in the mid, in the Midwest? I know Don, you're not just in Indianapolis here. You cover all over the Midwest. Yeah, we have a Cincinnati office as well. The, yeah. the, the um, well, first of all, seed round, it's hard to raise. First institutional round, hard to raise. Right. So let's not. Is both of that unique to the Midwest or just period? No, no period. Yep. Um, it may be a little bit more pronounced in in the Midwest a bit. Uh, hopefully that's that's changing, right? We obviously have the Next Level Fund program uh, here in Indiana, which is very, very helpful. Uh, I expect in two years from now we'll look back and say, wow, that was a, a really interesting shot in the arm for folks like us and other folks who are uh, active in Indiana. Um, and that's kind of similar to what Centrifuge's Fund of Funds yeah, uh, does. Absolutely, in and that's the it also harnesses the big co's yeah. as well. And uh, we're fortunate to be... Uh, uh, to have Centrifuge as an investor in our fund. And so uh, we get to see uh, from the big co's what they're interested in, and we get to make introductions of our portfolio companies. So they, you know, they're helpful on a number of different fronts. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, there's an active sort of angel network, um, but by no means would I say it's easy. Um, and I'd say that's true here as well as Ohio. I, I just got an audience question. Um, from the Facebook Live audience, and that is, how do we turn outside investments into local wealth after exits happen? So I think what that means is, you know, coastal VCs or non-Indianapolis or non-Midwest VCs and investors investing in the Midwest companies, but then when the exits happen, that wealth is going back outside of the state or back outside of the, the region. So I also think that's changing as well. There's more and more uh, wealth that's been created here that is being plowed back in to, uh, to the state. Um, if you just think about uh, Exact Target and a Primo, 
those folks are keenly interested in pouring money back into local startups. Look at Mark Hill and Kalina Ventures. Same thing. Great right? example. So a lot more as a percentage is staying here, and that's a virtuous cycle. Um, ultimately, there's nothing that beats success in terms of uh, addressing that issue. Um, but also, the more you have success, it also encourages people who made money that you know, are from the coast to redeploy here. And so that's been accelerating over the last number of years as well. I know one of the things that I've I've heard as advice to entrepreneurs when pitching for their seed round is that when you're pitching, oftentimes to a high net worth individual, and because it's the Midwest, oftentimes they're not high net worth because of tech. They might be high net worth because of you know something in manufacturing or real estate or legal, uh, depending on on what their role is. Uh, and that advice was to make sure you're educating on the benefits of this particular asset class. Uh, of growing. Um, Brian, I'm not sure if you had had any um, experience in doing that or if you uh, if you were to do that, what, how would you kind of pitch that to a high net worth individual uh, that's looking to invest in startups? Yeah, I mean, we went through some of that in our seed round. The instrument that we used was a convertible note, and that was three years ago. And, you know, it was, people have been doing that on the coast for a while, and it was sort of a new th- it wasn't a new thing here but a lot of the people that we talked to were not seasoned tech investors and so there was definitely an educational process to uh, you know letting them know like this is what you're investing in um this is how it will work but i think at the end of the day you know it, it depends on if you're investing if you if your seed investors are you know if if they're smart people if they're especially if they have a business background you can get them to the point where they're going to understand both the risk and the potential reward. Um, and once you get past that, then, you know, the mechanism and all that doesn't really matter a whole lot. But, uh, you know, for us, it was a little different because I had a legal background and I had done this before. Um, so it, it can be a challenge for, you know, especially a first time entrepreneur to be able to explain that stuff. Now, fast forward to where we are now, this market is much more mature. Um, I think uh, just from talking to people, you know, um, and in our experience, the, the, you know, the, the climate and the attitude of angels and small funds and everybody else is, is, is much more sophisticated here locally now. Um, so. Love it. Don, anything to add? Yeah, I would say we're fortunate to have a number of investors in our tech fund who have no real tech background. And so there's, you know, we have someone who owns a baseball you know, baseball team. We have somebody who was CEO of Burt's Bees, right? So we've got sort of this gamut. We have someone who owns a cheesesteak cheese sandwich chain, right? Um, ultimately, there's some level of education around sort of what we do and how we do it. Um, but they wouldn't be successful if they didn't understand sort of asset class diversification. And ultimately, what a lot of these people bet on is the people, right? They're betting on you and you. Um, Absolutely. And so that's, you got to be true to yourself. You got to have great presence. You got to, you got to be articulate and you got to let them know what you're doing and how you're going to make them money. Um, And that's ultimately the name of the game. That's great advice. I'm sure we could talk here all evening. And for those of you that are not uh, on Facebook live, you're welcome to hang out with us afterwards, grab some beers, grab some more food. Uh, but I just wanted to thank all of our uh, presenters here tonight, all of our guests on the show. Uh, could we give a huge round of applause to our awesome guests here?
I also want to give a, a huge thanks again to the, the law firm Brian mentioned, Taft uh, Law. They're actually our legal counsel. Uh, they help a number of startups here in the local and national tech ecosystem with their rounds of funding, but also just general legal matters, which Brian instructed me many years ago. Get a lawyer, you dummy. Uh, <laughs> it's really good advice as, as a business owner. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to say thanks to them and, of course, Nameless Catering for the food here and then Live Switch Media for doing the live stream. Uh, please share the live stream if you're watching on Facebook Live, and if you're here in the audience, please go check out our Facebook page and share the live stream later. Uh, share the stories of these fine entrepreneurs and, and a very active investor in the Midwest. Uh, thank you guys so much, and uh, hopefully this is not the last live taping that we do of the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs>